0: Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. The idea that we are born again after death has been a source of fascination within and beyond the Buddhist world for millennia. Yet the history and scope of Buddhist approaches to rebirth hasn't been widely explored by Western scholars. In his new book, *Rebirth: A Guide to Mind, Karma, and Cosmos in the Buddhist World, Scholar Roger Jackson offers the first complete overview of Buddhist understandings of rebirth. Jackson has dedicated much of his professional life to examining interpretations of rebirth in different Buddhist contexts across cultures, including how Buddhists today wrestle with the concept. In today's episode of Tricycle Talks, I sit down with Roger to discuss views of rebirth across Buddhist traditions, how you can be reborn without having a self, and whether you have to believe in rebirth to be a Buddhist. So I'm here with Roger Jackson, Professor Emeritus of Asian Studies and Religion at Carleton College. Hey Roger, it's great to be with you.
1: Good to be with you, James. Thanks very much for inviting me.
0: Oh, you're welcome. So Roger, we're here to talk about your new book, Rebirth, A Guide to Mind, Karma, and Cosmos in the Buddhist World. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it?
1: What inspired me to write it is sort of a 50-year-long struggle with what for (laughs) me is a kind of koan that I heard on the first day of the first serious meditation course I ever took from some lamas in Nepal. And that was to the effect that mind is beginningless. And as someone raised in the West with a, you know, somewhat skeptical, humanistic, scientifically informed worldview, this did not make sense to me. And yet it was clearly a central and seminal claim for these Buddhist teachers with whom I was studying. And so I took this, as I said, as a kind of koan, and worked over the years to try to understand it. Eventually, when I ended up in graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, studying with Geshe Hundup Zopa, I decided to do a dissertation on what I was told was the classic Indian proof of the fact that mind was beginningless, i.e., that there were past and future lives. And so I, I worked on that, and at least early in my academic career, that was a major focus for me. Even after I finished doing scholarly work on it, it's remained personally a kind of puzzle, partly because of I think of the question of whether it's possible in the modern world to be Buddhist and yet not accept rebirth in the traditional, somewhat literal sense of it. So fast forward a bit to, oh, I don't know, three or four years ago, and an editor at Chambala named Casey Kemp, who had asked me to contribute an article on rebirth in modern Buddhism to a volume edited by Richard Payne called Secularizing Buddhism that came out last summer. You know, I agreed to do it. I submitted the article and it was like three times too long. I have a tendency towards this, unfortunately. (laughs) And uh, she said, well, you know, this is great, but we're only interested in the modern part of it, not all the great background. you." supplied, why don't you write a book on it? (laughs) And so uh, she said, Shambhala has this series on sort of basic Buddhist ideas. And if you write a short book on that, that would be fantastic. Well, I wrote the book. It was sort of my pandemic project at the beginning. She said, this is great, but it's twice as long as it needs to be. (laughs) So we're going to publish it as a standalone volume. So what it attempts to do really is to, as the subtitle I hope indicates, is to kind of survey a whole range of Buddhist ideas and practices, probably a little more focus on ideas than practices, but ideas and practices that Buddhists have developed over the centuries to think about rebirth, to think about where it happens, how it happens, why it happens, all these kind of basic questions. And so the book is focused more than anything else on the Indian tradition. I spent a lot of time kind of going through the Pali Canon and looking for what seemed to be appropriate references, some of the Abhidharma texts, like those of Vasubandhu and Asanga and some Theravada Abhidharma texts as well, to try to get this kind of general picture. I also looked at Mahayana texts in some detail to see where Mahayana Buddhism, which developed later in India, fits in with this larger picture. And also eventually developed several chapters that have to do with ideas and practices surrounding rebirth outside of India. So there's a chapter on the Theravada world of Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia, a chapter on the East Asian world of China, Japan, and so forth and a chapter on the Inner asian world of Tibet, Mongolia, and so forth. And then the last two chapters are an attempt first to kind of survey the ways in which folks in the West, especially since around 1800, have dealt with the notion of rebirth. And the very last chapter is an attempt to get at modern discussions and arguments about this with, again, that kind of central question I mentioned earlier very much in mind, namely how meaningful is it to try to be Buddhist in the modern world over against these traditional Buddhist claims of rebirth, which are not intuitive or obvious or even acceptable to many modern Western people.
0: Right. We'll get to that question a little bit later, but I'd like to start with asking you to walk us through some of the South Asian understandings of rebirth that were circulating at the time of the Buddha.
1: Sure. The South Asian world in which the Buddha lived, and we don't, nobody can agree exactly on when the Buddha lived, it should be said, but most people would place him in the mid to late part of the first millennium BCE. You might say somewhere around the time of Plato or a little bit earlier. And this is an Indian world that is undergoing dramatic changes technologically, ideologically, politically, socially, for reasons that are probably too complex to get into. But what had started out around 1000 BCE or even earlier as a kind of polytheistic ritualist tradition guided by Brahmins as the sort of central officiating religious figures, and that relied a great deal on ritual sacrifice as a way not only of effecting matters in the world, but also of holding the cosmos together in some ways. This, anyway, was at least part of the system that was in place even after 1000 BCE. But through a variety of changes, again, in society, technology, politics, and so forth, we begin to see, particularly with the arrival of texts like the Upanishads, a kind of new way of seeing reality. And one of the new features of reality as the Upanishads began to articulate it was the prospect, which was not really present in any obvious sense in the early tradition, but the prospect that even though we live and we die, it may be that we will come back again. And that in fact, we may come back again after that. And that the fact that we come back again is not necessarily a good thing. I think it has to be understood that for the ancient Indic world anyway. Rebirth was not something you looked forward to because the notion increasingly was that however you know, high-born or low-born you might be, however rich or poor, whatever sufferings or pleasures you might have in life, they're all limited, they're all impermanent, and they cannot compare to the prospect of a kind of eternal blissful liberation described as moksha or nirvana that lies completely outside of this cycle of rebirth, which goes by the name of samsara typically. So the Upanishads kind of set the stage, and in the middle of the first millennium BCE, not only Brahmanical or proto-Hindu groups like those reflected in the Upanishads, but also a variety of non-Hindu groups, groups that did not accept the Vedas as authoritative, Groups of wandering ascetics going all over North India were exploring both theoretically and practically and contemplatively ways in which we might actually get liberated, get outside of samsara. Among these various groups, these wandering ascetics, one of the groups was what we now call the Buddhist group or just Buddhism. Siddhartha Gautama was one of a A large number of wandering ascetics in North India in the middle part of the first millennium BCE. And he set himself off from the other groups partly by detailing what samsara looked like, the various realms of samsara, in considerably greater detail than most of the other groups did. Although there was a a similar group, the Jains, also a surviving religion today that had their own way of talking about this, which was quite detailed. Anyway, the Buddha set himself apart through a variety of important teachings, perhaps the most notable and controversial of which is the idea that there is no such thing as a permanent or eternal self. Whereas for Hindu groups, to identify with an unchanging, permanent, pure self, Atman, Brahman, call it what you will, was the key to liberation for the Buddha and for then most of his followers subsequently to understand that there is no such self is the key to liberation. So in this sense, Buddhism turned these early Hindu traditions and also Jain tradition, which though non-Hindu also tended to adhere to the idea of a permanent, unchanging self or soul, the jiva. So the Buddha set himself apart in this way. The early Buddhist literature, like the Pali Canon, through which we get our picture of all of this, does go into a lot of detail on how samsara is structured, for instance, into six realms. And each of those realms is subdivided in various ways. You know, it's typically the hell, hungry ghost, animal, human, Asura, or titan realm, and the realm of the gods. You also find in the early literature, both in the Pali Canon and in some of the Abhidharma treatises, specifications as to how this process happens. And the key element there is the idea of dependent origination, which often is said to be made up of 12 links that specify how it is, for instance, Ignorance leads to unskillful karma, which leads to unfortunate rebirths, and so forth and so on. And then there's also, as a a kind of third major element of all of this, there's the explanation of why it happens, which above all is linked with the idea of karma, which of course in Sanskrit simply means action and is interpreted, at least in Buddhist tradition, to mean intentional action, action that has been willed. And karma is if you will the specific moral version or instantiation of the broader law of dependent arising the causative or causational nature of the universe and karma is the way this works out in a moral sense that is a certain quality of action leads to a particular and appropriate result not just in this life but in some future life as well Those are some of the ways in which the Buddha was set within his own time period as one of many people trying to figure out how to get liberation from samsara, but then specifying these various ideas about the self and these various ways of articulating the location, the process, the reasons for rebirth.
0: So how do so-called first-person accounts of rebirth figure into this?
1: Well, in the early tradition... Even though we have nothing like a connected autobiography of the Buddha until some centuries after his final nirvana, there are a number of places in the Pali Canon where the Buddha, in some way or another, reports on his own experiences. And those experiences, in some cases, give him, if you will, first-person evidence of the fact of rebirth. Now, the most famous of these is in accounts that we find in the Pali Canon, and these later become standard in the biographies of the Buddha, Mm -hmm. of the night of his awakening or enlightenment, where sitting, having conquered Mara and his hosts and his daughters, he sits under the Bodhi tree through the three watches of the night. And during the first watch of the night, he describes how through a process of deep concentration, he was able to see the infinity of past lives that he had had. He was able to say, you know, it's in such and such a time, I was born in such and such a place, and this is who I was, and this is what I did. In a beginningless cosmos, remember, mind is beginningless, he could have gone on with this forever and never come to the beginning of his lives. But basically, he was able to see as directly as if he were looking at something around him there in Bodh Gaya, he was able to see what his past lives have been. So this was one way of confirming that there are past lives. And he also then, in the second watch of the night, again, through this process of deep contemplation and concentration, gained what's sometimes called the divine eye. We might call it clairvoyance, where he was able, in the present to gaze about him and to see how it was that karma was leading this being or that being to this rebirth or that rebirth. And again, so right in the present, he was able to see how it is that karma connects to rebirth. And again, through this kind of direct perception, this direct experience, to see that this is how things work in the cosmos. So the third watch of the night then. There's different versions of it, but he then, in many accounts, goes through the 12 links of dependent arising, understands how it is that's a way of understanding the process of ignorance, karma and rebirth. And he undoes it all so that when the morning star appears at dawn, he realizes that he has awakened, that he's done all there is to do and that he is a Buddha now.
0: So some scholars have argued that rebirth was less important to the Buddha than we might think, but you don't buy those arguments. Can you share a little bit about why you don't find the minimization of rebirth convincing? Yeah, I mean, some people say that it's just, it was in the water.
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was in the water, but what's in the water affects us to a considerable degree. There are a number of different arguments along these lines. One argument is a kind of a what you might call a textual stratification argument, an argument whereby if we look at what many scholars regard as some of the earliest parts of the Pali Canon, found in the Sutta Nipata, specifically the chapter on the eights, there seems to be less of an emphasis on rebirth than there is in what we might consider to be later strata of the Pali Canon. I mean, this is an interesting argument but I, I think it falls short for two reasons. The first is that you don't have to read very far between the lines of the suttas in the chapter of the eights to see that the problem of rebirth is still there as an overriding issue for people. The other is that the textual stratification itself is subject to some doubt, I think, and that whether the Sutta Nipata in general and the chapter on the eights in particular is truly as ancient as claimed is is at least a, a debatable point. The other important argument, I think this is the one that you were alluding to somewhat more, has been put forward perhaps most prominently by Stephen Batchelor. Batchelor has argued that if you really read what the Buddha is saying, yes, he talks about rebirth, there's no doubt about it, but that he was merely doing this as a kind of sop to convention. As you say, it was what's in the water. It was, it was part of the, the lingua franca of religion and metaphysics in you know, mid-first millennium BC, India, but that he didn't really take it seriously. That what he was interested in, according to Bachelor, and according to Bachelor's reading of the Pali Canon, was a kind of ethical, pragmatic, psychologically incisive way of being in the world and that the metaphysics was just it was kind of extra it it was it was superfluous it really didn't matter and bachelor actually has a kind of principle of interpretation that he applies which says that basically anything that could be found in as you said in the water that could could have been found in the culture around the buddha is probably something that the Buddha, as a tremendously original thinker, just sort of put out there for the sake of people's general understanding. Those points in his teaching that are unique to Buddhism, those are the ones that really ought to be the focus. I find this unpersuasive, both on methodological and on textual analytical grounds. Methodologically, it seems to me, A kind of an arbitrary principle to state that anything that might have been held by other people in the Buddha's culture can't therefore have been really what the Buddha thought. Ironically, Bachelor, who's done some very good work, tries to historicize the Buddha by showing how much a part of his culture he was. So why wouldn't belief in rebirth be part of what he accepted from his culture too? The other is simply that I just think you've you've got to exclude so much material as you read through the Pali Canon. You have to just put in aside so many references to rebirth, the realms of samsara, the functions and processes of karma that how much you end up with is really open to serious question. I find each of these arguments unpersuasive overall. But of course, we you know again, we don't know. <laughs> The Pali Canon is not a verbatim replication of what the Buddha taught. It's uh, the result of a long process of oral and also written redaction over the course of several centuries. So it may well be that the Buddha did not originally teach these ideas, but we can only go, it seems to me, on the textual evidence that we have. And the textual evidence does not seem to support the idea that this did not matter to the Buddha.
0: Okay, you mentioned earlier the five or six realms, depending, that karma lands us in after death. Mm-hmm. Can you just go over those really briefly before I ask the next question?
1: Sure, sure. I mean, very very briefly, and again, working from the most highly populated to the least populated, and from the bottom up, there is hell, which sometimes you know is a kind of generic notion, the way it sometimes is in Western traditions. But more often and reasonably early, gets subdivided into all sorts of different hells. And eventually you get notions of both hot hells and cold hells, occasional hells. There are a vast range of different hells that we might end up in, largely though not exclusively on the basis of violence committed in a particular lifetime. It can be other non-virtues as well. If you go to temples in places like thailand and sri lanka you'll see these wall paintings that depict the miseries of the hells and and it's pretty clear there's a wide range of things human beings do adultery is another one that can land you in hell or one of the hells slightly higher than that in the typical arrangement is what's called the pretta or the hungry ghost realm which is in some senses the realm of unquiet spirits It's clearly connected with broadly Indian ideas of what happens to those we love and know after they die, but it becomes kind of uh, formalized eventually as a realm in Buddhism. And it's a realm that, you know, we don't have knowledge of the hell realms for the most part, unless we have some kind of psychic ability. The hungry ghost realm we occasionally interact with. We don't see it much, but there are certain times of year when we might see Hungry ghosts, and we leave offerings for hungry ghosts. Often, this is a kind of pan-Buddhist idea. Above the hungry ghost realm, then is the animal realm, which, again, from the Buddhist standpoint, is seen as basically the, the lives of most animals are, in Hobbes's terms, you know, nasty, brutish, and short. They live in fear; they're constantly needing to find food, to reproduce, and so forth. and And it's it's not a good existence, even if you're the president's dog or something like that. <laughs> Above that is the human realm, which is not the highest in this sort of pyramid, but is the realm that is considered most conducive to actual spiritual progress because it's in the human realm that we have, if you will, just the right mixture of pleasure and pain. We have intelligence. We are able to actually understand our condition. And if we're not too miserable, we can actually do something about it. Above that, then there is is again what's called the Asura or sometimes the Titan realm, which is a realm of of kind of jealous, powerful, somewhat violent gods. And above that, then there are a variety of different heavens inhabited by gods and goddesses of various types who have very long, often very blissful lives that are not in fact outside of samsara. And it's entirely possible within this whole scheme to be one of the highest of the gods in one of the higher heavens and still to end up, because some particular karma comes up for you at the time of death, down in a hell realm the next time. It's a little bit like a Ferris wheel. You're up one moment and before you know it, boom, you're at the bottom. So So complacency
0: is sort of the enemy in the... uh,
1: Complacency is not an option. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Okay, you place special emphasis on the moment of death, which, to quote you, looms large in the Buddhist imagination, for it is the portal between one life and the next, fraught with both danger and possibility. Can you share some of the practices associated with the moment of death and some of the beliefs around what happens immediately after?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In the philosophical and Abhidharma traditions there are a variety of different kind of technical explanations of what happens at the moment of death and i think that perhaps the tradition that is best known for its practices surrounding death is the Tibetan tradition which is also the tradition that i probably know the best and there there is a great deal of literature that was developed and some of this of course comes out of the indian context originally but it was certainly developed in various interesting ways in tibet Ways in which the Tibetans will talk about the different signs that may appear to us when death is relatively imminent. And then when the death process actually begins, there are a variety of sort of internal cues that we can pick up on or signs that we can observe. And that some signs that can be observed from the outside by somebody who's, say, tending to us. I'm doing this in the context of sort of a quote, normal, relatively slow moving death obviously there's many types of death some of them very sudden and all these processes get telescoped dramatically in a sudden death but in a gradual death anyway your various sense faculties will begin to as they say dissolve or absorb no longer really function you'll see different kinds of internal images of one sort like a mirage or fireflies or things like this and you'll you'll move you know, sort of even more inward at a point where externally your breathing has stopped and yet processes continue internally whereby you happen upon or have appear to you different sort of colored visions. They have very technical names in the literature, but basically a white vision and a red vision and then a completely black experience followed by what then is called the luminosity, or the clear light, which is the actual moment of death from the standpoint of Tibetan tradition. And at that point, the clear light experience is similar to the experience of the nature of reality that one can attain through practicing on the path, especially the tantric path that is so important for Tibetans. And it's possible at that moment to sort of as it were get it get that clear light realization then one in effect can be liberated right at death but if like most of us we're unable to truly realize this and it happens just in a in a jiffy then we go into what the tibetans the tibetan word is the bardos, which is a is typically a sequence of up to 7 1 week lives or stints in an intermediate realm in which one has already in a sense taken the subtle form of the karmically determined rebirth one will next have but there are practices well known within tibetan buddhism for instance the so-called tibetan book of the dead that are instructions for those who have died about how to recognize the various visions and signs that you see as merely being manifestations of your own mind, merely being the nature of reality and sort of holding out the possibility that you can, even though you missed the clear light when it happened at the moment of death, you still might get it. There are instructions to this effect that go on for 49 days typically. At the end of that, if one is still not gotten out of this uh, downward tending tunnel if you will then one will take rebirth that's one way of talking about that because the moment of death particularly the clear light experience of the moment of death is analogous to or really the same as the experience of the nature of reality there's a great stress in practicing before you die so that you can recognize this. And many of the most advanced tantric practices that are taken up by the Tibetans are attempts to almost kind of pre-enact your own death process so that you can recognize the various signs, the various phases of death. You can know the clear light when it appears and you can, if you will, seize upon it to gain liberation.
0: I mean, you just described the Bardo experience, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Until just now, we've been talking, though, mostly about mainstream Buddhist understandings of rebirth, and by that I mean the early Pali teachings. Can you share some of the distinctive features of the Mahayana view of rebirth? In particular, how does the emphasis on the multiplicity of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas change the rebirth process?
1: I'm not sure how much it really does, to be honest. I mean, I I spend a bit of time going through Mahayana literature trying to puzzle out the seeming disconnect between the paradoxical language and rhetoric of something like the Heart Sutra or the other Perfection of Wisdom Sutras or philosophers like Nagarjuna or the mind-only yogachara texts, anyway, whole range of Mahayana sutras and shastras, where often it's, there seems to be a, a kind of either a, an annihilation of ideas of rebirth and pretty much everything else. I mean, there is a rhetorical level on which the perfection of wisdom literature, for instance, which is really foundational to the Mahayana, seems to be nihilistic. And there are other aspects of of Mahayana literature that if they're not nihilistic, they seem to be sort of totalistic or monistic in saying, well, for instance, everything is Buddha. So there is really no distinction. Everything is all already awakened. You you have rhetoric like this sort of at at both ends in the Mahayana. But what I come to, well, two things. So the first is that this is really deceptive in a way because there is uh, either explicitly or implicitly running through the literature of the Mahayana is this very important notion, maybe articulated most clearly and earliest by Nagarjuna of the so-called two truths, whereby from an ultimate standpoint, no entity or concept can stand up to rigorous analysis. It is therefore shown to be empty, and that you know that's everything from form to omniscience, as they like to say. And he's got chapters in his fundamental stanzas on the middle way, you know, rejecting karma, rejecting the tathagata, and so forth and so on. But that's just from an ultimate standpoint. In fact, it's actually the emptiness of things that guarantees that there is a conventional world that operates pretty much the way Buddhists traditionally said that it does. And so what you discover, in fact, if you read something like the Perfection of Wisdom in 8,000 Lines, which is arguably the oldest Mahayana Sutra, arguably the oldest Perfection of Wisdom Sutra, that it's got chapters where everything is rejected and chapters where it talks about hell and going to hell. So you have to know what level of discourse Mahayana literature is working on in order to understand this. But the takeaway, it seems to me, is that there really is almost never an actual denial of the traditional cosmology as laid out in the Pali Canon and the early literature. Now, you you mentioned the point about multiple Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And this does, of course, it's one of the many ways in which the Mahayana is distinctive relative to those, quote, earlier traditions. But I think that here, again, it's just... It's merely some changes around the edges. So, for instance, if you take a very important historical and cultural phenomenon like pure land Buddhism, which developed, it seems, in India and perhaps Central Asia originally and found its way into Tibet, but it's been most prominent in East Asia, particularly with its focus on Amitabha or Amito or Amida Buddha, who presides over the Western paradise of Sukhavati, you know, this becomes an option, a rebirth to aspire to because it's sort of on the cusp between samsara and nirvana. You know, there are ways, there are paradises that get introduced. There is the notion that there are Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who can help us, whatever realm we happen to be in. So there is a little more play there, a little more possibility perhaps. But I think fundamentally the Mahayana in India does not dramatically alter the basic framework that was set up very early in the tradition. And I, I would go on to say that, as in the Tibetan case that I just cited, in East Asian cases, in Theravada cases as well, you know, obviously there's all sorts of particular cultural practices and different ideas and there are variations, but the themes remain the same, the cosmological structures Remain the same. The aim to be free from samsara, even if you choose to take rebirth in it as a bodhisattva sometimes does, still the aim is not to be held by samsara anymore. So in the, in that sense, I think there's a remarkable continuity, kind of historically and and cross culturally within the pre-modern Buddhist world.
0: Yeah, the way you put it, the Mahayana claims bend the model, but they don't break it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Many of the most accomplished artists of medieval Japan, including Ryozen and Sesson, were Zen monks credited by later generations as the originators of a unique and remarkable legacy of ink painting. Mind Over Matter, Zen in Medieval Japan is currently on view at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Asian Art through July 24th. The exhibition displays the breadth of the museum's medieval Zen collections, highlighting rare and striking works from Japan and China to illustrate the visual, spiritual, and philosophical power of Zen. Visit asia.si.edu slash zen to learn more. That's asia.si.edu zen to learn more. Now let's get back to our conversation with Roger Jackson. One topic that often comes up in discussions of rebirth is the question of what is actually reborn given the doctrine of no self? In other words, how can we be reborn without having a permanent self and how have different Buddhist thinkers tackled this question?
1: Yeah, I mean this is both in my classes at Carleton College over the years and in many other contexts uh, historically for Buddhists. This is the $64 question. You know, the bright undergraduates would glom onto this almost immediately. And it it was a real challenge because even among the various Indian schools or traditions, Jainism, Hinduism, let's say Hinduism is a term that actually covers a whole variety of different views and practices, but we'll use it as a lump term. You know, Hindus and Jains both accepted the idea of samsara. They accepted the idea of rebirth. They accepted the importance of karma in this process, and they accepted the reality of some kind of spiritual liberation. And yet they were extremely critical of the Buddhists precisely for the reasons you were just suggesting, that with the kind of radical Buddhist claim that there is no permanent, partless, independent self, there was the danger, especially if you take this to kind of a logical extreme and come up with a doctrine of which many Buddhists did, of sort of radical momentariness, where there's simply no connection even between one moment and the next, then in the minds of their Hindu and Jain critics, the Buddhists were actually destroying any possibility for a notion of personal identity, of memory, of moral responsibility, and so forth. So the Buddhists had they had a lot of explaining to do, as, uh, <laughs> as we, we would say these days. And they came at this from a variety of different angles. There are two that I, I guess I would identify as most important. The first is kind of analogical. And this is, of course, a style of argumentation that perhaps isn't as rigorous as a rational proof, but it is utilized in all sorts of different cases by Buddhist thinkers. And I think the classic example here with regards to the question of rebirth is the example cited in the famous Pali text, the questions of King Melinda, the Melinda Punya, which is a dialogue between a Greco-Indian king and a Buddhist monk. And the king asks some very, very good questions, challenges the monk on various points of Buddhist doctrine, and this is one of them. And roughly speaking, the answer that the monk gives, nagasena is to use the example of a torch. I'm paraphrasing this slightly from the original but I think it conveys the spirit of it. If you light a torch at sundown and then every hour light from that torch you light another torch and an hour later you light another torch from that and then you know at the end of 12 hours you there is a final torch the question arises well is the flame of that final torch the same as or different from the flame of the original torch at sundown. There's not exactly an answer to that. There's some ways in which it's the same and some ways in which it's different. So there is continuity without stasis, I suppose, would be a way of putting it. Another way that it's sometimes put in tradition, and I've seen this a lot in modern discussions too, is the notion of a river which has a certain kind of identity, but what makes up the river is the water, and the water is in constant flux and motion, right? I mean, it's back to Heraclitus. You never step into the same river twice. So those are sort of analogies that are used to show how in ordinary life we have phenomena like this. And so by extension, it could be that although there's no permanent unchanging self, there still is this continuity that leads eventually to rebirth and therefore preserves moral responsibility, memory, personal identity in some way. Anyway, the other way that it's approached is through the whole Abhidharma tradition, the tradition of kind of systematic metaphysics and uh, phenomenology. That's an important part of Buddhist thought everywhere. And Abhidharma, it often gets a kind of a bad rap because it's very systematic, very technical, lots of lists, but... The way I see Abhidharma is as a kind of grand attempt to describe the way the universe works without recourse to a permanent self. And so what the Buddhists are left with, of course, is a very, very complex description of the interaction of different causal forces, for instance, and how they work on the level of the individual, how they work on the level of the cosmos how they work in the process of passage from one life to the next. So it's neither of these ways of coming at this is entirely intuitive or obvious or self-evident. But, you know, with a little sympathy for the analogical example and a little patience for reading the Abhidharma, we can see at least how Buddhists managed to give an account. Frankly, if you think about the accounts of the cosmos given by modern physicists, you're not doing something, to my mind, entirely different from what the Abhidharmists did. The Abhidharmists were much more interested in mind. (laughs) For them, it was central to the cosmos. For physicists, not so much. But the point is that physicists describe the cosmos as well without recourse to any kind of metaphysical substance. And somehow, it makes sense.
0: Right. So far, we've focused on Buddhism in South Asia, but you talk about How Buddhism, as it spread to other parts of Asia, changed and rebirth was either adopted or adapted, or maybe a combination of both. Would you like to say something about that?
1: I think the central point, as with my point about Mahayana, is that the superstructure remained more or less the same. Again, the Chinese or the Tibetans or others might add in an extra realm here and there or an extra subdivision of some realm. But I think that the description of the basic layout of samsara, the processes by which samsara is perpetuated through ignorance and karmic formations and so forth, and the operations of karma all remained more or less intact. What I had in mind when I talked about adoption and adaptation had a little more to do with the kind of cultural circumstances that Buddhists found themselves in when they arrived as missionaries in, say, China or Sri Lanka, to take two examples. My analysis is probably quite simplistic in some ways, but I think it is fair to observe generally that in certain cultures that, for instance, had not developed a long tradition of literacy, had not developed a great deal of political unity, the arrival of Buddhism was a signal cultural moment. And Buddhism came to be kind of definitive, at the very least, of a particular ethnic group, if not quite a whole nation. And Sri Lanka would be an example of this. not, of course, that there was no culture in Sri Lanka before the arrival of Buddhism in, say, 200-something BCE. But the kings of Anuradhapura in Sri Lanka took it on, probably for purposes that were not entirely altruistic there was political value to this, but they kind of adopted Buddhism more or less wholesale. And Buddhism came to be definitive of at least Sinhalese culture within Sri Lanka ever afterwards. And it's an issue even to this day and sometimes unfortunately so. A culture like China, on the other hand, had 2000 years of history, literature, culture, religion behind it when Buddhism showed up in the first century of the Common Era. And if the Buddhists sort of Took Sri Lanka by storm, it wasn't such a hard thing. But China, for all sorts of reasons, was quite resistant to cultures and ideas that came from the outside. And while there may have been some pre Buddhist Chinese ideas about rebirth, they were not certainly developed to the degree that Indian traditions have developed these ideas. And so there was a long process of a kind of accommodation and adaptation that. Went on in China. Buddhists, for instance, had to really try to reconcile their notion of the six realms with vital Chinese notions of filial piety. How do you stay in touch with your ancestors if they've gone off, if they're beyond your ken in some realm you can't contact? So there were, again, accommodations were worked out in that way and in other ways. But eventually the Buddhist scheme came to be roughly accepted within Chinese culture as at least one option, but it never dominated Chinese culture in the same way that you could argue that it was kind of definitive for Sri Lankan culture, I would say to a significant degree for Tibetan culture. Again, Buddhism never arrived looking at some tabula rasa. There always was a culture there before, and the Buddhists always had to accommodate it to some degree. But there is a difference between being able to dramatically shape a culture as opposed to really just affect the culture the way Buddhism did in China without ever becoming utterly dominant.
0: So, of course, Buddhism has come to the West and we face the same riddle. Do we adopt, do we adapt, accept, or process something that is so alien to our thinking? And you come up with four categories Of approaches to rebirth. You call them the literalists, the neo-traditionalists, the modernists, and the secularists. Could you briefly tell us what each of those is?
1: Yeah. The positions that I articulate probably could be applied to any religious tradition in the modern world. I don't think they're unique to Buddhism at all, but I won't get into issues of what modernity means and the place of religion within modernity. I think most listeners are aware of the challenges that modernity and particularly Western ideas and institutions and technology and power have posed for religious traditions of various sorts, You know, both in Europe and in the colonized world. These four positions with respect to rebirth are roughly these. So literalists come the closest to saying that the way the world works, the way the cosmos works, is pretty much to a T the way it is described in traditional pre-modern Buddhist literature. That is, there are these six realms. There are hot and cold hells. There are heavenly realms. Karma works the way Buddhists say it does, et cetera, et cetera. With really no particular apology for that. That's just the way it is. and we've got some arguments for you. Stay tuned. Neo-traditionalists, the term I use anyway, are people who are inclined broadly speaking to accept the truth of the traditional view. That is, they believe that we do survive death, there are rebirths, karma works, moral, you know, roughly the way Buddhists say it does and so forth. But they don't simply kind of represent the traditional depictions, the traditional arguments. They try to kind of alter them, bring them up to date in some ways by showing, for instance, that even that the ideas of science, understandings we've come to about human cognition and human experience, that all of these or some of these at least actually point to the possibility that the universe is more or less the way the buddhists described it maybe not in a literal sense uh, right down the line the way it said it turns up in the abhidharma Kosha or something like that but that broadly speaking it is correct and we have reason to believe that that is so it's not just arbitrary on our part the modernist view, as I describe it, we're moving, if you will, kind of from right to left here, (laughs) if we think of it as a kind of a political or cultural spectrum, with the more conservative being the more literalist. If we move slightly left of center, then we come to what I call the modernist view, which is the view that probably the traditional descriptions and the traditional arguments just can't really be accepted by those of us in our own modern context. And yet we don't want to just throw all this out. These are ideas essential to Buddhism, practices in some cases essential to Buddhism. And so what happens with a modernist is a kind of reconfiguration of these ideas onto a more symbolic or psychological or existential plane. So that, for instance, the six realms of samsara, come to be less a depiction of an actual destiny that we might go to after death and more as oh you know either psychological states that we can pass through even in the course of a single hour or a single day or depictions of the various circumstances that human beings live in in our current world so that's just one example of that and the secularist option then basically says all these ideas are from the past, they're traditional, we can't really even entertain them anymore. We simply have to reshape Buddhism in an utterly modern, utterly secular way. In effect, Buddhism as a kind of form of secular humanism with a particular vocabulary. So that's the range as I see it. Though so these are complex categories. They overlap in various ways. There are people who fall into one or multiple categories at various times. It's a much more complex scheme than that. But those are the basics.
0: I can see how this applies to any religion. I mean, take transubstantiation and try the same thing with it. <laughs> but let's get to the question. Can one meaningfully practice Buddhism without karma and rebirth?
1: I think the answer is probably yes, but again, it depends on what you mean by without karma and rebirth. Do you mean without a literal acceptance of those as depicted in tradition, or do you mean in sort of modernized terms?
0: I was thinking of the debate that Stephen Batchelor and Bob Thurman had in the 90s in tricycle. Mm -hmm. Stephen Batchelor is known for his formulation of secular Buddhism, and Bob is a professor of Tibetan Buddhism at Columbia University. So that's what I was really referring to.
1: Right, right. And this is a wonderful debate, which can be found online. And I would urge folks to check it out because it's a scintillating conversation between two very bright people who are committed to very opposing points of view here. And Thurman's basic argument is that, no, you can't meaningfully be a Buddhist without a more or less literal belief in past and future lives. For one thing, it makes a mockery Of the bodhisattva vow to take life after life in order to assist other beings to achieve liberation. He's got various arguments, including on the basis of memories of past lives, research by Ian Stevenson of the University of Virginia. He and Batchelor both agree that emptiness is the key teaching of the Buddha, that emptiness is pretty much an irrefutable way of understanding reality. And if the Buddha was correct about that, then by extension, we ought to trust what he has to say about these metaphysical and cosmological matters. Batchelor, for his part, simply says, no, I just I can't accept the arguments. I can't accept the traditional descriptions. And, you know, in fact, we just have to do the best we can with who we are and what we have. And he does concede at the very end of this debate that probably the best he could do would be to behave as if there might be past and future lives without actually being committed to them because he at least at that point was adhering to what he called buddhist agnosticism those are the kind of parameters of the debate between what i would call a neo traditionalist in bob thurman and a in that particular instance a modernist in stephen bachelor
0: right so you tend to lean toward the as if school i just like to read something that you wrote in the book Freed from the illusion of perfect objectivity, therefore, why not think and live as if Buddhism were true? In doing so, we empower ourselves to enter, as fully as is possible in a skeptical age, into the ongoing, ever-changing life of the Dharma, adopting Buddhist ideals, telling Buddhist stories, articulating Buddhist doctrines, performing Buddhist rituals, and embodying Buddhist ethics in ways that make meaning for ourselves, provide a measure of comfort to others and perhaps contribute in some small way to the betterment of an imperfect and imperiled world in which we all live. I wonder if you could say something about that.
1: I suppose in some respects, this is my version of Buddhist agnosticism, because I don't honestly know in the end whether rebirth is real in the ways that tradition has said it is, or perhaps in the ways that neo-traditionalists suggest it is. I, I just don't know. And given that, but given my own skepticism about traditional arguments and perhaps traditional depictions, it seems to me that it's quite possible to be Buddhist in a, in a tentative way. Now, I know that that goes against the grain of what many people think religion is all about, which is about commitment, faith, and so forth. And, you know, it, it may be that this is a very pale version of Buddhism. But I think that many people in the modern world are defining themselves religiously in somewhat similar ways, actually. It may turn out that maybe just around the corner that we'll discover some marvelous revelation will occur that will uh, show me to be wrong and maybe to show everybody to be wrong.
0: That's probably most likely.
1: (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Almost certain that it will be and probably not in my lifetime anyway. I think I came to this long ago. I didn't really articulate it. I'm still working on articulating it all. But this came to me many years ago when I really first discovered that I just couldn't buy the traditional arguments for rebirth, particularly those of the 7th century Indian philosopher Dharmakirti, which are cited by Tibetans as the proof of it all. At first I thought, well, that about does it for Buddhism for me, huh? <laughs> if I gotta believe these central doctrines, I might as well be honest and just ditch the whole thing. What occurred to me, what I realized at that point, this was after, you know, close to 10 years of trying to be a Buddhist anyway, was that willy-nilly I had become Buddhist in almost every other way. Culturally, the way I thought about the world, ritually. And I certainly believed in the value of examining the mind, of meditation, of compassion. I believed in the reality of emptiness being the nature of things and so forth. There was just so much there that was so rich and that I had become part of that I, I just sort of thought, well, <laughs> you know, how much does it matter whether we accept X doctrine or Y doctrine. Granted, there are more and less crucial doctrines to a religion, but one thing that religion scholars often do, particularly in recent decades, is point out that being of a particular religion is not just a matter of adhering to certain doctrines. It's a much larger gestalt, if you will. I've described it elsewhere as a kind of aesthetic that you take part in made up of ideas and practices and rituals and memories and conversations and arguments and so forth. That's broadly speaking what it means to be religious, with doctrine and the literal acceptance of doctrine being maybe not so big a part of that after all. Maybe I'm just saying that to console myself or to justify (laughs) myself. Actually, you're
0: you're consoling me too, so... (laughs) Okay, so you conclude the book with the Buddha's account of a previous life as a seer named Rohitisa, who traveled for a hundred years as fast as the wind, and to quote the book, died along the way without having reached the end of the world. To close, would you be willing to read a passage from the Sutta?
1: Sure, this is uh, towards the very end of this. The wise one, the world-knower, who has reached the world's end and lived the spiritual life, having known the world's end at peace, does not desire this world or another.
0: So how does this sutta influence your own approach to studying and thinking about rebirth and the end of the world? Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, end of the world in the case of this sutta really refers to the physical limits of the world, I think. He's traveling and traveling and traveling and he never gets to the end of it. I think that for me, The Buddha is making a kind of reflexive move, saying that, you know, you want to find out where the end of the world is, or maybe you want to find out where the end of time is or the beginning of time. And that's not the point. The place where the world begins, the place where the world ends, the place where it finds its limits is actually within you within your own fathom-long body is where all of this arises, all of this ceases. And if you're going to find an end to the world in some sense, this is where you find it, within yourself.
0: Oh, that's a nice way to end. So, Roger Jackson, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: For our listeners, be sure to pick up a copy of Roger's new book, Rebirth, A Guide to Mind, Karma, and Cosmos in the Buddhist World, available now. Thanks again, Roger. Thank you. You've been listening to Tricycle Talks with Roger Jackson. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. Tricycle Talks is produced by As It Should Be Productions and Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle the Buddhist Review.